Hello and welcome to Rise of the Data Cloud. Today's episode features an interview with Andrew Fong, Vice President of Infrastructure at Dropbox. Previously, Andrew has served as a senior system administrator at a number of technology companies, including YouTube and AOL. On this episode, Andrew talks about how to use data storage to create better workflows, the future of cloud data storage, and much more. So please enjoy this interview with Andrew Fong and your host, Steve Hamm. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about yourself to start. I, I noticed that you've been at Dropbox for about eight years, which is pretty long for a technology startup or a, a Silicon Valley company. So you must like it there. Why have you stayed so long? That is right. I, had, I joined Dropbox in about in 2012. At the time, I think the company was about 120, 130 people. I moved over from Google and I have found Dropbox to be this really unique experience of this intersection between technology and people. And that has created this really unique culture. For me, that's actually the main driving reason that I've stayed. I would sum it up as when you work in infrastructure like I do, it's very hard to find a scale and a reach in, in most companies that, that you're afforded to build on top of. And Dropbox had that. And then we also had this incredibly talented technical set of, of engineers. And that intersection for me really just gelled. And I've just had a fantastic time bouncing around between technology projects along with and working with a set of exceedingly talented engineers. And that, that's yeah. the reason I've stayed. Yeah. You mentioned the culture. What's, what's so unique about it? I find that we really try to put the technical efficacy of projects at a level that really resonates with me. Um, we try to make sure that we make the right technical decisions coupled with the right business decisions. We make sure that we have the right discussions and we have them up front and we're pretty frank about them. And we really try to remove the, you know, all the inherent biases around why you should do something or why you shouldn't do something and look at it from the lens of what's best for Dropbox. And so that, that we used to have this value of we, not I, that value really comes through for me. Um, I find that cultural value of like, of just trying to do the right thing overall for the company to be really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. 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 So, you know, the name of this podcast is the rise of the data cloud. And that's obviously our big theme. And yet, you know, I note that in 2015, Dropbox migrated from the public cloud to running its own data centers, kind of the opposite of the trend that we are focused on. And so why did the company do this? And what were the results? You're correct. We did migrate our data, um, our storage platform layer away from the public cloud. I will, I do want to take a step back and level set with how Dropbox is architected. Okay. Dropbox has two main pieces of content. One is the metadata about files. This is the access times, the ACLs, the creation time, who owns the file, et cetera, um, the file name, where is it located in the directories, and then also storage content. And from the very beginning, we've always been in a hybrid mode. We've always had our own data centers, our own footprint, as well as leverage public cloud. So we've had that competency and we wanted to build on that competency. And we saw ourselves as a company that was going to be fundamentally powered by data. This is, and at the time, I think we had roughly 600, 700 petabytes of user data in the public cloud. And we said, we need to have control of this data. We need to be able to make 
and find efficiencies in this data. We need to be able to analyze this data in any way we want to analyze this data. We want we really saw data as a core competency that we needed to have as a as, as a business. And so we took we started that journey about migrating out of the public cloud in 2015 for storage. We still do have a footprint in the public cloud for other for other things, but it was, this is primarily around storage, and we just felt it was a really key part of the business and at the scale we were operating at operating at that we could find those efficiencies. I think that answered the first part of your question. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me pin that down a little bit. So I want to understand. So you moved, so all the storage, your, your, your customers data, you moved into your own data center. Correct. We moved about 600 petabytes, 700 petabytes yeah. at the time. So what's the advantage of moving that into your data center? What, what efficiencies or ability to analyze the data do you get out of that? When you think about building a storage system, you have to think about the customers and the use cases that go on to that storage system. And when we designed our storage system called Magic Pocket, I may refer to it as MP, but it's the full name is Magic Pocket. Magic Pocket is designed as a purpose-built file system and storage system, block storage system, not file system, block storage system for Dropbox. And what this means is we don't actually support all the APIs that the public cloud was supporting from their block storage system. We built a storage system which was purpose-built for the workload that we had. And when you do that, you can build an end-to-end vertically integrated stack. You probably don't want to do that if you have one terabyte of data because you're not going to get any economies of scale. But when you start to look at you know, data sets approaching an exabyte, and we're well over an exabyte of user data at this point, when, when you have data set sizes that large, you actually can build a vertically integrated stack that is much more efficient than a general purpose stack. So think about this as... You know, a lot of times in the ML and AI world, you hear people saying, I'm going to use a GPU because it's more efficient and I'm going to get a better, I'm going to, it's going to be faster. It's going to give me better performance. It's going to be cheaper for, for the number of cycles I need. This is a similar sort of play where we're actually able to do that with storage. Yeah. Okay. So what parts did you leave in the cloud? What parts of your business? What, what data? What data do we leave in the cloud? Things that we've left in the cloud have been international block storage actually, because as you, as we were talking about, you have to have this economies of scale and you do have users and customers that want to have data stored outside of the North, Northern America, which is where our locations are storing data. And so we leverage public cloud in Europe, in um, Tokyo and in Australia as a way to extend our footprint and allow local data to be, to be stored within country, within region. And that's, we look at that as a feature that we can provide. We built a, a storage system that has an abstraction that allows us to route data blocks anywhere we want. So there's not a, we're not beholden actually to have any single one storage system store these blocks. We can actually store them in our magic pocket system. We can store them in any number of public clouds if we so desired. Mm -hmm. So let's get to uh, um, let's get to Snowflake's technology because um, I know you use it. So if you could explain how do you use it, that'd be great. So if we're thinking about how do we use Snowflake and how do we adopt it, what we look at is we've had a very robust analytics data pipeline. But at the end of the day, you have a, to service the business user as well, not just the engineering footprint user. And what we found Snowflake to be very good for as a use case for us is actually to slice the data and I'll give, give interfaces to a, a non-technical set of users. And when I say non-technical set of users, I want a level set that I'm talking about in the engineering team at Dropbox, which is going to be much more accustomed to going in and writing a bunch of code to analyze data and be comfortable with that. And so this is going to be a bridge into the 
into the general business operations units, into the teams that need to do financial analysis. We need to be able to give them interfaces that allow them to make performant queries, that be able to visualize that data very quickly, and generally give them an experience that's not, uh, that's not what an engineer would have. We need to give an experience that's much more from, you know, I would say consumer, but like a true end user. We need to look at it from that perspective. And we really found that Snowflake gave us the ability to do that. From, from that perspective. Yeah. Let me see if I understand. So it sounds like you've, you've moved the, your, your customer's data mm -hmm. into your own data centers, but you're using Snowflake for business analytics. Is that a way to put it? Yes. So we use Snowflake for, business, for, for a set of business analytics, and we still have a data lake and a data pipeline that's in our production systems, which runs both on-prem and public cloud, and that all funnels into a centralized public cloud sort of storage system, which then routes some portion of that data into the Snowflake systems. Okay, cool, cool. Now you mentioned engineering, general business, and financial analysis. Can you kind of walk through some of those? How exactly are those functions using the Snowflake technology and, and using analytics based on that technology? The primary use cases for this are going to be routed around understanding where users are in the world, that type of data, it's not going to be cutting sort of the ML and AI side of the, of the analytics, which is going to be much more powered on the production side. So I mean, when, when, when we think about cloud data, we think about some of the sharing capabilities of it, specifically the ability to break through the silos that organizations often have within, you know, within their own structure. Is that something that's useful to you about the cloud data warehouse and the cloud data platform? We definitely have a strategy internally where we want to democratize, democratize the data as much as possible so that we can make high quality business decisions based on data. So I think about this as, you know, it's a tiered architecture. You must have some repository of all the data. You must govern that data in some way so that some of these metrics are actually going to be certified metrics that we can actually push through pipelines all the way up to CFO financial dashboards or all the way over to the product teams that need to make very clear cut decisions on whether they should launch a product or not launch a product. And so as you move up or down that hierarchy, you're going to have different types of interfaces that you're going to need to have for different types of users. And so when I think about how we leverage Snowflake, it's going to be much more on the top end of that stack, more on the CFO side. And then as you move down to the product, product analytics, and keep going down the stack, um, you're going to probably shift more into, I would say, a user base that wants to consume a tremendous amount of data that's very unstructured. This could be crash reporting logs, for example. Like our analytics pipelines store that type of data as well. It's not just purely a set of business making decisions. It could be we need to use this data to to analyze crash rates across all of our desktop clients, which number in the hundreds of millions to billions. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that's unstructured data, right? I mean, you're just putting that in the, in the data lake. It's very unstructured data. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, um, you know, I, I have a question about your business. I mean, I, I'm a great admirer of Dropbox. You know, I also wonder about it because, you know, cloud storage provides tremendous utility for businesses and for individuals that need, but, but on the face of things, it's a commodity business. So how does Dropbox add value and achieve high profit margins, you know, keep its stock up and all that kind of stuff? So from a, if I look at the types of data that we store from a customer perspective, it's just an astronomical amount of data. It's one of the largest repositories of data in the world, most likely from a, 
from a, from a business and consumer perspective in a unified way. And as customers put more and more data into it, they can build workflows on top of that. They can, and we can enhance the value of that. I would, in a, the simple example I use, my wife is a lawyer. She sends files back and forth all the time for contracts and she redlines them. And then she's always constantly trying to figure out what's the diff of contract A versus contract B. Did I send it to the right person? What if that person's out of the office? How do I get a response from the lawyer at the other company? And so when I think about using Dropbox, right, this provides a workflow that's a, that, we, that can be built on top of that data. So she can look at the diff, she can get the revision history, she can understand who's looked at it, who's modified it, she can look at the commenting history on it. And it's document type agnostic in some sense. It's not just a Word document, she can do this with a PDF. She can look at it on her mobile device, she can look at it on her, on her iPad, she can do it as she's you know, on Muni in San Francisco. And it gives her a way to free herself from the sort of desktop application that was there in the, in the previous world. And so these smart workspaces that we're looking to enable give us a bridge from what was file sync and share and from the very simplistic manner which you're talking about the commodity side much more into a bridge around collaboration where there's another party and it's not just you using your document but it's someone on the other side as well so i i used, like to use that example because i it hits home for me when i watch her and her workflows and she does you know she works at a place that doesn't use dropbox and i constantly tell her you know if you if you had this you, this, your workflow would be much, much better and you'd be able to collaborate with like a much wider set of people in a much faster way. So there's an efficiency she would get from her workflow as well. Yeah. So in, in this case, is Dropbox a platform that these other applications are built on top of? Or do you actually build, you know, vertical or horizontal apps into your, plat, you know, into your technology? So we have integrations now at this point within the desktop application service. So we have partnerships with Zoom, for example, where starting a meeting around a document is something that you can that you can do straight from the Dropbox client. You can build other integrations with, other, with some of our other partners. I believe Atlassian is a partner where you can tie in Jira tickets, you can tie in Confluence right back to the content, right? And so now you have this single place where you in single pane where you can go and you can create workflows as needed, whether, and so you're not having a thousand browser tabs open. I know that's something that I constantly struggle with is I have a million websites open for a million different places, but I still can't find that one piece of information I need. And so from our perspective, if it all starts with content and we have this repository of content and people are working on that and collaborating on it, that should be the focal point and the thing that everything else rotates around. So you've talked about these new capabilities that you build on top of, of your storage capabilities, these, these, truly applications uh, and workflows. And I'm just wondering, have you used data analytics either to help you kind of design or improve those new capabilities? I would go as far as to say that every single feature we develop, every single experiment we do is all about using the the analytics pipelines. We wanna make thoughtful decisions about what we launch and what we don't launch. And then we also want to use them, you know, if you take it to the logical extreme rate right, the ML and AI side of the world, we want to use that from, for surfacing their better data to our users as well about what they actually could take advantage of. Um, so in our tray, in the menu bar, populating recent documents around a meeting, for example, you can either do that with simple heuristics or you can build some, some more sophisticated ML and AI models around that. So that's like on one extreme of how we're using the data. And then in the middle, there's the generalized 
we've launched a product and we understand sort of the A-B testing about how is it doing. Was, what, were we seeing more active users being driven from solution A versus solution B? And so we, ha we take a very rigorous process from that perspective, very standard sort of industry best practices around the A-B testing and then making sure we're using analytics in the proper way to actually build models around understanding what the users are actually doing and what behaviors they have when they, when they enter the site or they're using our Dropbox clients. Yeah, yeah. So do you consider your, I mean, the technology that you run in your own data centers, you could, that's based, that's cloud-based as well? Is that, is that how you define it? But it's private cloud? I would define what we run as, I would say that we are a cloud service provider. Mm -hmm. We're not providing utility computing. We're providing a cloud service. And by that definition, I would say that we have built a cloud. Our cloud is around the Dropbox ecosystem, though. How would you differentiate between a cloud and a utility though? I'm not quite getting that. The way I would differentiate it is when I think about this major CSPs that are providing raw compute or raw storage with no value add on top of that, that to me is a utility. Think of it as an electric company. You get electricity coming in, you can buy a compute, you can buy some CPU, use that CPU. That's the way I would define the AWS cloud or the GCP cloud. And then I would say that, at, that Dropbox is a cloud service provider in the sense that we provide a, we have to build a platform and then we build a platform on, and we build this platform called Dropbox on top of that. And that is a service that we're out, outing back out as a cloud, as a cloud, is a, is a public cloud provider in that sense. You have your own cloud. Yes. Okay. What are the biggest challenges you face on your job and how does data help you solve them? The biggest challenges that I face within infrastructure, a lot of these are gonna be around launching new technologies. And at the scale we operate, data plays a very big role in that. For example, we have millions of hard drives in production. These hard drives generate a tremendous amount of data about the hard drive themselves. We need to analyze that data. We need to understand the failure rates of hard drives at a massive scale. We need to understand and be able to predict when hard drives will fail before they fail. So it allows us to take proactive action against them. We need to understand how data placement and locality around the world plays back into our performance metrics. We need to understand how, what the applications are doing in production from a monitoring perspective. So we store an incredible amount of monitoring data as well, just about sort of the performance characteristics, the latency characteristics, how is the application performing once it's deployed? So data is fundamentally ingrained in how infrastructure works because we have to use this for every piece of decision we make way from financial models all the way down to is did we what was the performance of that drive when we stored this bit of data on it yeah so yeah back to the drives and the performance of the system you're collecting a tremendous amount of data you're streaming it you're mo you're essentially monitoring these working machines so it seems like this is one of those great examples where it's really programmatic people aren't involved in making decisions. You have a system that is tuning itself in real time using data analytics. Is that the correct? At a high level, yes. We have a stream of data that comes out from the drives that's put into a logging pipeline. The logging pipeline puts that into, into a, 
effectively and actually in the same data lake that everything else goes into. And then there are some jobs that run across that to look at the types of, uh, look at the types of failures and then generate tickets as needed back to the data center teams to replace drives. And then you can also do things, and this is how we work with our vendors from the drive side is like, we want to look at those drives and look at the failure rates over time, look at if they're matching up what the benchmarks that we had when we qualified the drive looks like. So we're using analytics from that perspective just to always make sure that in this case, like what we bought is actually working the way we expect it to work um, and that we're not missing anything about the performance characteristics of the system. And so some of this comes from the analytics pipelines and some of this comes from more of a time series database pipeline. Okay. Hey, I want to um, ask you one more question. I want, I want to ask you to step back and be a visionary for a moment here. Mm -hmm. So looking ahead over the next decade, how do you think data and data analytics will kind of change the world of business and, and even the world for people? I think that right now in the world we live in, I, you know, we're in the midst of a unprecedented times in this, in this global pandemic. I think that there is a huge amount of data and value as people start to, that will be used as people start to work from home more and more and more. And we are even at Dropbox looking at that and trying to understand the user's behavior because the user's behaviors, and I know my personal behaviors, I'll speak only for me, have changed substantially just since I've been working from home over the last few weeks or the last eight weeks. And I fundamentally believe that we will see evolutions in products. We'll see products that no one thought needed to exist. And that will all be driven from the understanding of the behaviors we see via the analytic, via the business intelligence, the analytics we're collecting. We'll use that to make new and better product decisions around just even in Dropbox, like how does Dropbox work better and better suited for the, for a work from home workforce? I think those sort of thing, those sort of problem statements are going to pop up more and more and more. I think that's probably the, the, clearest advantage from a from if i think about dropbox from how data will change over the next five to ten years for us for sure yeah 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 when i think about it you know if people don't return to quote normal if offices kind of become obsolete and and they might be in some in some cases you certainly don't need the old you know storage lockers you know the, the old file cabinets and things like that and it, it could kind of drive the last wave of digitization you know going fully digital and then you know flying the coop out of the office so that would that could be a pretty interesting transformation and cloud storage is an, an essential element of it to make that work so that's pretty cool is there is there something that could take us a little deeper on the cloud data platform i think that the biggest piece i mean the what snowflake has given us has been really getting the fundamental biggest use cases have been really around financial reporting data, I think has been the biggest win for us in the short that I, that I'm aware of. I've gotten a little bit more involved in the last couple of weeks, but that's, and that's been the highlight over the last couple of weeks has been just how much we've used it for financial reporting and making sure that we can surface the right information there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, maybe give a little more color on that. Is there something about that technology and the way it's delivered that enables them to do things that they couldn't do before or couldn't do as well before? When I think about the financial reporting data and the ways we're building dashboards um, using Snowflake, the really big value add for us has been how simple it has been for the business intelligence teams to use it to create these dashboards. Our current systems and our other data lakes and the other systems we have powered are powered by a little bit more 
a little bit more complicated systems that are going to require deeper knowledge of the data sets as well as technology stacks. And what this has allowed us to do is remove the barrier to entry into data as well as provide a way and a way to create a gate to allow us to filter the right sets of data into it as opposed to make a user base have to understand you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of metrics. And this really gives us a way of curating the metrics pool and creating a very simple, simple interface, which I think you know, is, is a company value of ours is around simplicity, which is like a huge value add for the, for the, for the user of the system. Complex systems almost never result in someone producing the result you're looking for. So I think that Snowflake has really given and really nailed it for us on making sure that our user base is able to get exactly what they want by not building something that's overcomplicated for them, which is in some sense the way our rest of our data lakes work. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's democratizing data. It really does help democratizing yeah. da democratize yeah. data for us. And it doesn't require a, a data scientist to, to do sophisticated work, I guess. Correct. I would say, I would go in one further and say, it does not require deep engineering expertise of the product to make it work. Oh, okay, very good. So here we are in the middle of this crisis that's impacting people's lives in so many ways, impacting businesses, the economy, all of society. How are you seeing that impacted in, in Dropbox? At Dropbox, COVID's been it's all encompassing as it is for almost any company in the world or all companies in the world at this point. I think of it as there's two or three major work streams. One is around people, just making sure that people are safe, making sure that people have the tools and technologies to work, be able to work from home. We had a excellent cloud strategy from our, from our, from our ITS teams, our technology teams on the internal side around being cloud native and being cloud first as a strategy. And so that allowed us to make a move to work from home incredibly seamlessly. The entire workforce basically was home the next day and we declared a work from home and everything just worked. Now, my role um, on the technology side is head of infrastructure. This journey for me actually started late January. Our head of supply chain came to me and said, 2020 is not gonna be a normal year. And for those who don't know, supply chain typically has pretty far reach out into Asia. We actually do a pretty deep integration um, of our stack all the way down into the vendors um, on the ODM side. So we have pretty strong relationships with the Asian companies that are building physical machines. So we started looking at supply chain and we started looking and figuring out, okay, how do we get to tier two, tier three commodities? Because we realize that things such as sheet metal even are gonna be a scarcity around manufacturing. Um, and so we've been diving in on that level from the infrastructure side. So this has had a fairly large disruption, a fairly large um, amount of uh, work put in from the supply chain team just to just to keep capacity coming. And I think every company in the world that, with a supply chain right now is is being impacted by that. And on the third, I think is you know looking forward, right? Like we have to have a work stream around what does work from home look like, and how do you keep so the mental health aspects of of the workforce? How do you make sure that people feel cared for, feel connected, are able to maintain engagement back to the organization? Um, and so, to me, those are the big three things. Those are the things that we're really thinking a lot about right now. Back to the supply chain thing. So you basically you have a bunch of data centers you are buying all of the storage equipment, the computers, the networking devices, all that kind of stuff and outfitting them. Do you reach all the way back into the component vendors who, who put that together? It seemed like you were suggesting that, but that's, that's really, I, I never would have guessed. So we reach, um, we maintain 
relationships with about seven different, seven to eight different commodity vendors for key components. Think CPU. Uh, we were the first company in the world to deploy AMD at scale, for example. Um, we were the first company in the world to deploy SMR, which is new drive technology at scale in the world. So we have very, very deep supply chain and vendor relationships with the major drive suppliers, the major chip suppliers, uh, major RAM suppliers. We have that and that's part of the portfolio. And we touched on this earlier about sort of the vertically integrated stack. In order to get the economies of scale, you have to have that level of integration all the way up and down the stack. And so we maintain those relationships with commodity with the commodity teams. In this case, in COVID, sort of COVID-19, we had to actually reach a little deeper into the supply chain so we could understand exactly what the impact to delivery schedules was going to be, exactly what the types of things, exactly when and where things were going to show up. Every, almost every, every week, there's been something new. Shelter in place in the Bay Area put pressure on integration facilities here, which we weren't anticipating because most of the supply is coming from Asia. But you know, we do some final assembly in, in, uh, in the Bay Area for some of the data centers here. That caused a disruption in supply chain for a, a day or two while we had to figure out how, are, how do we compensate for that from an, from an essential worker's perspective. Mm -hmm. So there is a, the supply chain aspect is a, has been a very large focus for the last two or three months just to make sure that we're able to uh, maintain the runway, maintain all of the things that make Dropbox stay powered and run. So Andrew, I just want to thank you for being with us today. I thought there were some really cool insights, a lot of stuff I just didn't know. So uh, thanks for sharing it. Steve, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking about data with you today. And until next time, thanks. That does it for this episode of Rise of the Data Cloud. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by Snowflake. To see how you can get secure and easy access to any data with near infinite scalability, visit snowflake.com.